Whether it's the middle of the day, the middle of the night, the middle of your week, or just the middle of your time, it's time for the weekly wrap. That's right. It's just a quick compilation of the things that happen to catch my eye, either head-on or from the periphery. And for whatever reason that catches my interest, I wanted to share them with you. So join me for a minute as I share with you some of the more interesting bits of information that either crossed my feed, crossed my mind, or that somehow was lurking in the corners. And together, we get to make a discovery. This is the last week in March. Thank you for joining me for this edition of The Weekly Wrap. And I'm going to go ahead and start out with a headline that caught my attention coming to us from The Hollywood Reporter. And it was about gaming company Annapurna Interactive and their new game, Telling Lies, which is supposed to, according to the headline, blur the lines between film and gaming. Now, this project is helmed by Sam Barlow, who is most well known for his 2015 critical and, I think, commercial success, Her Story. Creator Sam Barlow will also be working with a few different stars, including Logan Marshall Green, Alexandra Shipp, Carrie Bish, and Angela Serafian. In a story the director is describing as Sex, Lies, and Videotape meets the conversation. Now, for a little history... Her Story was an interactive live-action video game about a woman talking to the police using PC and mobile, and it went on to sell over 100,000 copies. It received a number of awards, including Best Narrative Award at the Game Awards in 2015. It's four years later, and Telling Lies through Annapurna Interactive, which is the gaming division of Megan Ellison's production company, has already developed quite a catalog of critically acclaimed indie hits. And Barlow points out that, uh, as he says, when I originally pitched it to them, I wasn't necessarily looking for a publisher, but when I was introduced to them, it really made a lot of sense having their filmmaking pedigree, which I could access. And then on the gaming side, they have some really experienced people who have historically sought out the interesting and different experiences. Now, Many, including the writer of this article, refer to Barlow's work as certainly falling under the interesting and different. And it refers back to the fact that in her story, the 2015 hit, players took on the role of a homicide detective who is sifting through a database of police interviews to solve the case of a missing man. And that the game was most well known for the unique fact that it was live action, shot with real actors, featured central gameplay mechanic that was basically about navigating a 1990s computer interface and it dealt with the ambiguity of the storytelling. While some people, including this writer, uh, refer to the game as being a modest hit, it does point out that this introduced Barlow as a, a voice and a powerful voice in the indie landscape. 
what I like is that when they ask him more about this, Barlow points out that if you read a novel, you can be in a character's thought process, he says. You're that intimately involved with him, but it doesn't feel gross or icky. It's not voyeuristic. For me, what we're doing here is finding a way of giving you that novelistic closeness to characters who are being filmed. Now, while details about the new game, Telling Lies, are still unclear, some basic information includes that it is centered on four distinct characters and grants players access to their most intimate moments and personal relationships. Um, I'm really intrigued by this. I like the idea of someone who wants to reference back the idea of a close storytelling dealing with live action that also uses... Uh, a concept that novels have done successfully without, as he points out, making it feel icky and gross. And I really think that there's a need for things that are not icky and gross. Again, this was a story originally uh, in Hollywood Reporter, and I want to make sure I give credit to writer Patrick Shanley for pulling this one together. I'm always intrigued, uh, as I've mentioned, while working on the video game Planet Rise, to come across new uh, attempts at storytelling, something that I got to experience at GDC 2019, and something that I promised to have coming to you soon, which was and is a quick review tour snapshot uh, follow-up experience. I'll be honest, I've been a little busy, but stick with me, it's coming soon. And that's about all I'm going to spend right now talking about Annapurna Interactive's new release, Telling Lies, and the man behind leading that project, storyteller Sam Barlow. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. What I also like about the fact that Annapurna Interactive and Sam Barlow, with this product, Telling Lies, are doing is the use of the novel as a way to enter into the storytelling. I feel it works really nicely with my next topic, which has to do with a podcast that gained a lot of interest, and the sequel that is following up on all that acclaim. In 2018, the serial podcast Wolverine The Long Night won numerous awards, and in this new article from Inverse.com, a writer gets the chance to join the set during shooting for the upcoming sequel, Wolverine, The Lost Trail. I like that this points to a return to audio storytelling, something that was very popular in the days of radio. And yet, as this article points out, the examples that are so familiar, the exaggerated performances and over-the-top sound effects, are actually not a part of this project, which is a partnership between Marvel and Stitcher Radio. The article points to the approach feeling more like that of a movie. And in fact, the Stitcher Studios executive producer, Jenny Radelet-Mast, says, we approach it like a film. In her telling to Inverse, she continues, Character is everything. It starts with the writing. Obviously, radio drama has been around for decades. It's part of the origin of the medium. But we were looking at this as a way to flip the medium on its head. Now, the story is written by Benjamin Percy, 
who has credits with DC's Green Arrow. And it's directed by Brennan Baker and associate director Chloe Persinos. The story takes place outside of the original setting, which was the cold of Alaska, and it removes the storytelling from the point of view of two detectives who are on the trail of Wolverine. Instead, this new setting is in the swamps of the Louisiana Bayou, and the storytelling is front and center with Wolverine as he narrates Louisiana's mutant underworld. Now, interestingly, there is a point to be made that the influence of true crime may make it seem like Wolverine Logan is always about solving crimes, but Stitcher and Marvel are quick to point out that they wanted to produce a show that didn't just feel like Marvel doing a fictional true crime, and that it didn't feel right for them to simply follow in that already established path when they had an opportunity to do something more creative with a character like Wolverine. Some of the other elements that will make this feel more like a virtual virtual reality experience are four ambisonic microphones which create a 3D sound effect when the f- actors are physically acting out the script, which means punching, drinking, walking through clouds, everything will be picked up by the microphones. And yes, I meant to say crowds, not clouds. Plenty more that you can follow up on and dig into, but for myself, I was the most intrigued by the way that this story not only began in its origins with the first podcast in 2018, but the approach of this sequel by using film and the approach of film to tell an audio story. This is similar to the approach of Telling Lies, which is using a novel to tell a story, and it also invites the possibility that every time we're looking at storytelling in one medium, there are examples available in another medium that might make it easier for the storyteller to either begin the story, enter the story, or make it the most engaging as possible for the audience. When it comes to storytelling... That's always going to be something that's going to catch my attention. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. And that's not the only podcast you can find me on this week. The Spinner Rack number two came out just two days ago. And it was a quick glance and a quick peek at the top five books that caught my eye this week from DC Comics News. For those of you that aren't familiar, Spinner Rack is one of those classic metal inventions that allowed kids like me to spin through and past all of the delightful colors and images of our favorite superheroes, and if we were lucky enough, maybe even take one home. But usually there was just enough time to look at a few. And each week, if you subscribe to DC Comics News, you can join me for an episode of The Spinner Rack where we talk about, well, actually, it's just me. But if you're listening, I like to think of it as we. And that's where we get to talk about some new comics, some old comics, some fun comics, but essentially five comics and the reasons why. 
Now, this one got a little interesting because DC Comics released Detective Comics number 1000, the classic title for Batman fans around the world and across the decades. This was a collection of many stories from well-known Batman writers telling their version of The Dark Knight. I had the chance to review them all as part of this week's Spinner Rack, and I've chosen one for you to listen to this episode. Go ahead and take a gander, and we'll be right back. It's the last week in March. All of the new DC Comics books are out for this week, and that means we are back for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, where once a week, your host, Seth Singleton, that's me, pulls five books from the Spinner Rack, existing there the interdimensional space-time, five books released this week by DC Comics, to give you the what and the why about what's worth reading this week. So without any further ado, let's give the Spinner Rack a twirl and pull our first book. I decided to start out with Detective Comics number 1000. Simply put, it was a no-brainer. Here we are, celebrating Batman's 80th year. Detective Comics 1000, featuring such an amazing list of great writers and artists, I couldn't help myself or really come down too hard on myself for making this an instant selection. And it starts out great with uh, Batman's Longest Case by Scott Snyder. It's a case that reveals more clues with each panel. And it all leads to the Guild of Detection, where Slam Bradley says, Because every answer in the end leads to another question, and that's the real joy. And I really love this story for its detail, its intricacy, and for the revelation that the Guild of Detection features such prominent figures like Hawkman and Detective Chimp. There's others for you to take in, but what really stuck with me is the idea that this was something that was set up for Bruce. It was created from the moment of um, his earliest days as a detective, and each time he thought he had found an answer, he was only actually finding a new clue that was leading him on a greater mystery. And it's that chase for years and years that the other detectives know is actually the thing that drives him and the thing that drives them. And they let him know that the years he spent, because he asked how many years has been invested in this, that the role of who was working on his case and the next lead or the next clue always changed. All Detective Chimp does point out that one of the more, as he calls it, brilliant examples, genius, I think, was done by him and that he's extremely proud to point out to Bruce that this was his handiwork, while others might have had a hand in other parts along the way. I really enjoyed this story because I've enjoyed some discussions recently with the DC Comics News podcast team about how the new 
Batman movie is supposed to focus on Batman's detective skills, and it's something that we're all really excited about. Because when it's done correctly in the comics, Batman's ability as the world's greatest detective is unmatched, unparalleled. And I really enjoyed watching this story about his being a detective and about how being such a great detective actually means that he's part of this great cast, this great group that exists throughout time, who are all detectives, and that they all share the same passion for doing it. The next story, because there are so many stories in Detective Comics number 1000, Manufacture for Use, was written by Kevin Smith. And I'm going to keep this brief, one, because there are just so many stories in here that I'm only going to focus the majority of my time on the ones that I feel uh, really spoke to me the most. And for those that I simply enjoyed or didn't really feel there was as much to read into, for whatever reason, attraction, engagement, I'll go ahead and keep it on the simpler side. And that's the case for Manufacture for Use, which was a nice story from Kevin Smith, and it was about turning a weapon of terror into a shield. Batman, in one of his more common and familiar and perhaps fun street personas, or at least fun in the recent time frame that it's been used uh, by more than a few writers, I'd point out, purchases the gun that killed his parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne, in Crime Alley. When he brings it back to the Batcave... Alfred questions his motive, only to realize that Batman's point of telling the story, and as it's revealed through a series of panels showing him fighting villains, is that he wants to take the weapon and melt it down and turn it into a shield, something that will allow his parents and this element of their memory, this piece of violence and anger that was used to take them away from him, can now be a shield that he can protect himself with by placing it uh, where his bat symbol goes on his uniform. I felt that there were some parts that were a little heavy-handed in the telling of this, but overall, it wasn't a bad Batman story. It just wasn't one of the ones that I focused on as significantly as I did uh, previously with Batman's August Case, or as I enjoyed in the next story, The Legend of Newt Brody by Paul Dini. This was a really fun and light-hearted story about the worst henchman to ever be a criminal. Thanks for understanding my laughter while I was trying to read that and trying to just get those words out because it really was fun to enjoy that bit of humor that I always felt um, brought things like Batman the Animated Series um, to light and that sometimes the live action has has had an opportunity to catch hold of, but that overall has mostly been reserved to the animated and to the comic books. And this story of this just tragic henchman is told by different supervillains, from Harley Quinn to Riddler, and they all describe the ways that one bumbling oaf brought down a criminal masterpiece through sheer stupidity. In each example, poor Newt is either just unaware, clueless, or clumsy. And whether it's setting on fire and burning down poison ivies, 
lab and all of her experiments or accidentally doing something else just as ridiculous. Each villain points to Newt Brody as the one who led to their downfall right when they had created the perfect caper. Now, I will tell you there is a spoiler here, and I'm not afraid to share it. Newt Brody is actually a character and a disguise who is worn by many members of the Bat family as a ruse, as a way to infiltrate a caper and to then be a part of spoiling it through the clumsy antics of Newt Brody. In fact, I think it's only Damien, according to the final panel, who hasn't had a chance to play Newt Brody. And despite his height, he's ready to go in there as Newt Brody Jr., which I think would be a really fun story. Now, Batman's design by Warren Ellis was a story I really enjoyed about the Dark Knight's penchant for predicting and planning and his ability to make chess moves that outthink his opponents by 10 steps. And yet the story ends with his ability to show a trigger man that death is something that he tends to, as a ghost of Gotham, as someone who feels as though the parts of him that were still living have already been killed, and that the only thing left for him to do is to continue fighting this fight, despite the fact that so much of what made him, he feels, has already died. It's the kind of statement that breaks through to the trigger man holding the key to a dirty bomb. And it lets him know that just because he's frustrated and angry and he's experiencing a sense of powerlessness, that what he's attempting to do is something Batman already has done and is already doing. And that unless he's really willing to do it, he doesn't really need to because Batman's already there doing it. And even though what he's experiencing might be miserable, might be horrible even, that at the same time, he'll get through it because Batman will be there to essentially take the responsibility and also be the one who's capable of doling out what's needed in the responsible way that only he knows how. Sadly, this trigger man has gone too far, and he's willing to be destructive just to be hurt. Batman understands that frustration, but he also knows the consequences of what this man's about to do. And by speaking to that, he's able to bring this last moment of a very tense situation to a close, without needing to throw a punch, instead just being able to say the right words. In a return to Crime Alley by Denny O'Neill, the story opens with four boys robbing a party store, while Bruce, as Batman, is confronted by a woman who, though now much older, was a valuable part of his youth and helping him during the time that he experienced after his parents were murdered. She and Batman are attacked by these four young boys, one of whom found a gun inside the party store and thinks that, as the other boys support him, Batman is just a myth, 
and that this is just some idiot in a costume who they can take out. I didn't really understand why the woman who speaks to Batman is, for the most part, either unaware or unwilling to see past what she believes is her biggest complaint against Batman, that he's too close to the edge, that he's using violence in the wrong ways, and that his outcome when it comes to how he's dealing with situations, and specifically in the present with these four boys, is something that is damaging. And while I acknowledge that in the past I've read stories where Batman even admits that what he does isn't the best way to go about things, when they're in his town and he has to face them as Batman, this is what he does and this is who he is. And in order to be the Batman that Gotham needs, that's not going to change. And I was confused as to why there was a need to have this character tell him this, or for him to prove this to the the woman who, while she knew him as a boy, doesn't seem to understand how much her life is in danger, even if she feels safe because she's with Batman, or how dangerous these four boys would have been for anybody else who isn't Batman or doesn't have Batman hanging out with them. On the other hand, Heretic by Christopher Priest was a story that actually showed the impact that Bruce Wayne, before Batman, had when he had sought instruction from all the numerous temples and was later exposed to the League of Assassins. It was his impact and a time when he was beaten up in an alley and his wallet was stolen when Bruce Wayne was able to reach out to a student of Ra's al Ghul and to make that connection and raise that possibility. Now by the end of the story, when Batman is facing off against the League of Assassins, their leader accuses him of being a disease, of being some sort of infection. And that because of that, Batman, Bruce Wayne, is the reason that this man was murdered. And that all of the people that he was helping to escape from Ra's al Ghul and to leave the League of Assassins was brought out because of an exposure to Bruce Wayne. And that for that, Bruce Wayne and Batman need to not only suffer, but potentially die. Of course, that seems to be the goal whenever you're dealing with the League of Assassins. But I was intrigued by the idea that the story points out that this is only the beginning. And I'm curious to see when more elements from this story will play themselves out. In the story I Know by Brian Michael Bendis, Penguin approaches Bruce Wayne. They are both old. And Penguin reveals that he knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And then he explains why he has always known and has never told. And the story leads to a moment when Penguin has taken all of his penguins and equipped them with bombs and led them all to Wayne Manor when a giant gala is being held. And just before he is about to unleash them, he has a terrifying thought that if he misses and somehow Bruce Wayne and all of these famous people, but more importantly, 
Bruce Wayne is killed, that Batman, who he knows is Bruce Wayne, will lose that tether that he has maintained to his human side, this foppish, arrogant, annoying character of Bruce Wayne. Penguin claims that having faced Batman enough, he's looked into his eyes and seen that clearly Batman is on the edge of insanity. And he believes that if he follows through with his plan to attack Bruce Wayne at his manor and succeeds only in forcing Wayne to kill off that identity and become Batman full time, that it will be his undoing that they will all be destroyed for it, and that Batman himself will become a monster. And maybe he'll stop or be stopped, but not before Penguin and all those like him, but in this moment for self-preservation, specifically Penguin, will suffer greatly for it, and that the only way he can guarantee that he will stay alive or has any chance of doing so is if he walks away from this disastrous plan. I got a kick out of this because it takes me back to a film from the 90s called The Usual Suspect. And a character who is described at one point as named Verbal Kint is being grilled by an investigator who wants to know why Verbal, when the opportunity presented itself, didn't take a shot at a gangster who's legendary named Kaiser Soze. Verbal was hiding, he had a gun, and Kaiser Soze had his back turned to Verbal. And Verbal explains that he was scared. In his description, Kaiser Soze is the devil. He's the worst of the worst. Everything monstrous in or outside of the world all rolled into one. And that that kind of evil is so powerful that if some mere mortal like Verbal was to take a pot shot from behind and miss, it would be the end of everything. And that, that even if he did succeed, it wouldn't be enough. And in fact, even if he took the shot and he was right on the mark, it wouldn't be enough. As Verbal Kent explains to the investigator, how do you shoot the devil in the back? That image or feeling or impression was with me as I read this story and the description from Penguin about why he held back after having known all this time. Here's another spoiler. So if you need to turn down the volume, you go ahead. But in the final moments, Batman releases an electric volt that shocks Penguin. And then he says to Penguin that he knew that the Penguin knew his identity and that he knew that there was no way <laughs> the Penguin would ever do anything about it because he was a coward, that he was too afraid, and Bruce Wayne knew it. And the only reason Penguin had ever had a chance was because Bruce Wayne let him. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Staying within that vein of comic news, I was happy and lucky enough to join 
DC Comics News podcast for a great discussion about a number of topics in the DC universe. I was, of course, pleased to be joined by uh, host and DCN Review Editor-in-Chief Steve J. Ray, as well as new panelist, who's the owner of both DCN and Dark Knight News, Damian Fasciani, as we had a chance to sit down and talk about happenings in the DC world that include Doomsday Clock Number 10, the fact that Ravager and Jericho will be joining Deathstroke for the new season of Titan streaming on DC Universe, and the possibility of Batman, the new film by Mr. Matt Reeves, being set in the 90s. That was just a, a bit of the topics that we had a chance to cover, and because I feel like you can only get the experience with a little bit of a taste. I've got a small snippet from part of our conversation together as we were chopping down just a few of these pieces of news for not only our enjoyment, but hopefully yours. Go ahead and take a listen. I I love the news about Batman being set in the 90s simply for the the nostalgia, because yes, it, it does make me also feel old. Um, and, and because of that, some of that's going to feel fresh and also embarrassing because either it's a style that I embraced in some way, shape or form or unknowingly did and now can see myself reflected in the mirror and ashamed. <laughs> but, but what I do love is that the, the point of the story that they're focusing on is that he's got to crack a mystery and it's going to take him back to his detective roots. Now, we've talked about the the element of the detective story being so important to this movie and how much we're all looking forward to that, simply because it's not something that's really been portrayed well in in movies yet. And it's something that, if done correctly, could really sort of cement this thing that everyone who reads comics and Batman comics knows about Batman, his you know ability as a brilliant world-class detective but also that we'll get to see that foundation, where he learned his skills, who he learned it from, and the potential characters that could be introduced. I mean, there's people from Interpol, there's people from all sorts of different places that I'm sure everyone is thinking about. And the fact that we not only can get to understand some of his thinking when it comes to who he is as a detective now, but all of that history is just something that I feel is a goldmine not only for audiences, but for fans, because the the potential for the eggs, I mean, they're going to be darkly and brightly colored, and we're all just going to be eyes popping out of our head to look. I'm going to stop gushing. Brad, I'm going <laughs> to switch it over to you, because I could just keep talking, or I could be, you know, just a little bit more responsible. What did you think? Yeah, I think it's a cool idea. I think that having it in the 90s will definitely put some limits on the technology that he can use. There's not going to be drones and things like that. So he can really focus on that down-to-earth detective part of the character. So I think there's some cool potential in that. Um, And I don't think we're going to have to simply rely on nostalgia. I think there'll be a deep enough story that will resonate beyond (coughs) just nostalgia. So, yeah, I think it's a kind of a cool idea. Damien? Yeah, I was I was really um, I, I was really excited when I heard the news that it was going to be set in the 90s. It kind of, for me, it kind of takes away, 
you know, the, the modern technology component to the story, I'm kind of envisaging, um, a, you know, a really sharp focus on 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 the man, the human being, and how he breaks down a crime scene, how he interrogates people, how he pieces evidence together. And I think coupling that with um, some really cool action, because let's face it, we want to see action in this new Batman movie. We want to see, we want to see Batman kick ass and, and we want to see him do it the way he does it in the comic books. Um, but I think, again, we want to see... We want to see the origin, the, the origins of Batman. We want to see the origins of how Bruce Wayne became this this amazing world class detective. So, pulling it back to the nineties, I think yes was a was a smart move. Um, and you know, let's face it, Batman is DC's premium product. Um, it's 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 the anticipation for me is is incredibly high. I I, I think going back to being a detective story is is great we've never seen this before um but i think matt reeves is going to have to keep the balance between a detective story some really really cool action um yeah so i think that the 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 challenges that matt reeves will face is i mean we're going back and we're, we're he's creating he's creating a detective story and i think I think that's great because we haven't seen anything like that before in a, in a Batman film, and there's going to have to be a sense of of origin to that. So we so we want to be taken on a journey and see how Bruce Wayne became this amazing this amazing detective. But I mean, for me personally, I think the challenge he's got is, you know, you, you're going let's not let's not go too far that way because we do want some cool action and we do want we want to see. We want to see a replica of some of the the great action sequences in the comic books that we've grown to love. So for me, there needs to be a little bit, a little bit of a, a little bit of a fine balance there. And I think, you know, let's take it back, you know, 22, 23 years to the mid nineties and do that because it removes it removes the reliance on a whole bunch of technology and and focuses more on the man. Um, and I think I think that's great. Um, but you know, I'll finish off with saying that. My favourite for for Batman is still Carl Urban, but we're not going to get Carl Urban, so I'm intrigued to see who it, who who it's going to be. Um, I think it's very strange that we still don't know who it's going to be, and they're planning on shooting in you know eight months' time. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Four Bat Fans Separated at Birth podcast. Yeah, guys. <laughs> uh, everything you've said totally agree one thing that worries me a little with the 90s though is um if they say it's the 90s because that will just date the film horribly what i do agree with 100 everything all three of you said is yeah lose the tech the gadgets the gizmos we want to see a man using his brain fighting crime because that's what separates batman from everybody else i mean superman himself said it yes he's just a man but he's the most dangerous man in the world and that's the batman i'm sure all four of us want to see guys am i right with that yeah yeah absolutely i want to see batman punch people with his fists yeah baby and um (laughs) it's interesting too because i I just realized i didn't touch on it all was the fact that they're looking for a younger actor but also they want an unknown actor and i thought that was something that would be you know the more i was listening to everyone as they were describing what we are looking for, what we need from a Batman. I also think that it's going to be important for us to see a a fresh slate, a -hmm. fresh canvas or a fresh piece of clay that's being molded right before our eyes. 
and also because you know Damien was pointing out the idea like we need to see that that true action violence ferocity that we know Batman is always keeping just underneath always ready to tap into and when it's someone new it makes them unpredictable you don't know when they're mm-hmm. going to sort of unleash and it, it suddenly just spoke to me that wow going with a younger unknown allows us to have all of these great moments and fulfill these things that Damien, Steve, Brad, you've all been bringing up. And as I'm hearing it going smart, smart guys, if you do this right, you can set things up really smart and really deliver because of all these things that you'll be working with that, you know, we're going to be taking in. Yeah. And while I, I am quite sad to see Ben Affleck leave the role, the younger stripped back Batman has got a lot of potential for a couple of reasons. A, if it's a young unknown guy and he's great, how many more films can he make? This is a franchise that could become a legacy. This is something that could be awesome. This won't be one Batman making a couple of films and then vanishing. If they pick the right actor, which is why I think they want to get the right guy for the role, we could have a whole string of awesome Batman movies and Matt Reeves can do it. Um, I lost interest with Planet of the Apes after the first two. Uh, a lot of the sequels to me were just mush. Tim Burton made one mistake, and that was his Planet of the Apes movies. But Matt Reeves' Planet of the Apes movies, awesome. He can do actors. He can do special effects. He can do character, emotion, the whole thing. So yeah, yeah, me excited. Yeah, I thought the, the new Planet of the Apes movies were better than the, the original. Oh, hell yeah. Actually, so much better. <laughs> and and it, just yeah. one more thing about Batman real quick is it's kind of – interesting putting it in the 90s specifically because since gotham isn't a real place gotham always comes across as kind of timeless so you could still watch the tim burton batman Mm -hmm. movie and not think that it was made in 1989 it could have been made you know it, it could be present day almost i mean besides the certain technologies so that's an interesting kind of choice is why specifically the 90s and that's what worked with Gotham as well. The whole TV shows, you don't know when that's set. It's got like 80s style cell phones. But obviously the whole thing of being New York and it being a mishmash of architecture and light and dark and neo and art deco and gothic and everything else. Um, as long as it's like sort of 90s based, so it fits in with that ethos, but they don't mention the 90s. Yeah, winner. Moving back into the world of literature, I caught the headline for a story about the Danish girl author David Ebershoff and the headline stated simply writing process messy full of self-doubts I was instantly hooked the movie and the book are one that I'm in the same that I'm both aware of Um, essentially through the popularity of the portrayal by actor Eddie Redmayne in the movie that was based on the Danish girl. But I love that this first paragraph in this article pretty much describes how I would imagine any author, any writer, successful or not. Two decades and three best-selling novels later, author David Ebershoff says the process of writing for him is still pretty much the same. Messy, riddled with mistakes, and full of uncertainties. It goes on to describe how he broke into the literary circle with the Danish girl and the success that followed with the film. 
But it's the quote when he says, Writing is a messy process for me. It involves a lot of uncertainty, thousands of pages no one will ever see. It involves lots of mistakes, bad writings, and most of it is sorted out before it goes out in the world as the work of the author. And when I speak to younger writers, I share my own uncertainties, doubts, errors, and mistakes with them because I want them to know what they are going through. Is something I still go through. I always go through a significant amount of self-doubt. Can I do this? Do I have the skills? Am I smart enough? The rest of the article is great when it points out all these different elements that come along with it, including things like the pressure to succeed and how he relies on what's a good story and trying to think about that, I guess, instead of whether or not what he's working on will be more successful than what he's already done. The rest of the story is really enjoyable, and I highly recommend it, but that was the part that drove me in, and that's the part that I think will draw in a lot of people. The recognition that for all the portrayals of novelists, writers, journalists, essayists, Anyone who sits down with a pen and paper and somehow has garnered enough recognition for us to know who they are should be someone who's got it all put together, all wrapped up, all done. And instead, what we more often find is that that isn't true. That instead, despite all that success and growth and development and opportunity and benefit, they are still the confused, complicated, and complex people that you and I are. And in other ways, they're just as simple and needy and human as any of us can ever be. I'm curious to read the book and to watch the movie again and to consider all of this from the writer when I'm enjoying the material and thinking about the fact that when we're all just writing, when we're all putting it down on paper and doing our best to describe or provide it in the way that we know how, the only thing that separates us is who's lucky enough to get noticed or be successful. And even if it's about more than just luck, it still is about writing. Because success or not, writing one page or a thousand connects us all as writers. So thank you again for listening. And if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording, and you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe, Or just tell a friend? Well, thank you for that, too.